Hello and welcome to another message from Aldinga Bay Baptist Church. If you'd like to find out more about us or what we believe, please visit aldingabaybaptist.org.au. Exodus series, we're looking at chapters 7 through to 10. So it's four chapters that we uh, will be flying really through some of that. But this is, uh, these chapters are the chapters about the 10 plagues. And uh, so think about that. Well, that's, that's uh, confronting in some ways because it's a, a passage which is really about judgment, isn't it? You know, God, he, uh, he brings these plagues upon the great nation of Egypt, you know, and he's really undoing the great nation of Egypt uh, through, through all these different things that take place, you know, through the, uh, through the pestilence and, uh, and all the things associated with that. It is a passage that's about judgment and it can sometimes make us feel a little bit uncomfortable, particularly in the modern world, because we can think to ourselves, well, why does God have to do it this way? You know, why is it like this? Why does it have to be, you know, judgment and one thing or another? And I think it's a very real question for us as we, as we come to this. It happened three and a half thousand years ago, all of this very removed from us. But still, we have all this suffering and struggle in our own lives today too, don't we? And it may not always be judgment. We don't want to sort of run to that and say that's what it is. That's, that's not a good biblical way of thinking. But still, there's struggle in our lives and, and difficulties and hardship. You think, why is it that God allows things to happen like this? And I guess the question out of this passage, because that's an age-old question, isn't it? It's such a big one. And there's so many answers to that, and we're not going to give the complete wisdom on suffering and struggles today at all. But... There is, it's really interesting, this passage, because it actually is asking us a very specific question. I think, you know, behind it all, there's this, this question that is, being, is begging to be answered, that is being asked by this passage. And, and that is, what is it that God is saying through these struggles? What is it that God is saying through these plagues? And I think back into our own lives today, there's some parallel. What is it that God is saying to us through some of the struggles that we are going through? And, and so this text speaks to that very well. And I think it's, it's an important subject, hearing his voice. You know, that's the title. That's the idea. God's voice. God is speaking through the plagues. So what's he saying? Well, it's very much a passage, you know, the, the, probably the biggest idea through the passage is this idea about authority. That's what this story is about. It's a story about authority. It's about who God is, okay? And it comes to us straight up. In fact, uh, last week, if you were here for the sermon, it was really the big question that was raised there. Listen to how it goes. If you remember last week, Moses goes to Pharaoh for the very first time, uh, rolls in, full of confidence, it seems. And he says, commandingly, Pharaoh, the Lord God says, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go. And do you remember what Pharaoh said? His response is classic. He says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. That's great, isn't it? That's, that's Pharaoh. Why does he say that? Because, well, he's grown up all of his life thinking that he is a God. You know, that's, he's got no problem with his ego. That's what he's been taught all of his life. You know, that's the religious system of, Israel, of Egypt. You are a God, Pharaoh. And he's been appointed by the great gods of this great nation, Egypt, 
to rule and to reign. And so he looks at Moses and he sees a slave people. And so he thinks about a God of slave people, doesn't he? He says, who is the Lord that I should let Israel go? Well, it just so happens that that is, God is going to answer that question. Who is the Lord? And that's exactly what this is about because you go to chapter 7 and the passage that Tully's read for us today in verse 5, right at the beginning, God says, just before that, Moses, I'm going to send you back again to Pharaoh and I'm going to tell you to tell him to let my people go and eventually he will, hence the plagues. And why? That the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. So that's just it. This is, this is a question and answer. Pharaoh, who's the Lord? You know, I, I'm the king of this place. I'm God. And God's saying, all of Israel is going to know that I'm the Lord. And the way that they find out is through the content of chapters 7, 8, 9 and 10, and actually 11 and 12 as well, but we're not quite going that far. But it's about the 10 plagues. And so in case you, um, it's a bit too, going to take us too long to read them all, but just to remind you, this is how they go. It's a bit cryptic, isn't it? You have to try and work it out. But the first one is uh, on the top left is Nile to blood. Then there's frogs, gnats. Fourth plague is flies. Fifth plague is death of livestock. And then down the, down the bottom, we have boils and hail and fire and locusts, darkness, and then finally, death itself, the 10 plagues. They're interesting, those 10 plagues, because you've got to think to yourself, well, why, does, why is it like this? Why is it 10 plagues? What, what's going on? You know, are these random sort of things, these 10 plagues? Like we've just got the plague of flies. <laughs> well, hopefully he hasn't got any friends. But uh, anyway, um, that was great time. <laughs> but, um, you know, th- these plagues, why do, why do we have these plagues? Well, because they're actually saying something. There's a number of things. This is about knocking down the pillars of Egypt, if you like. And so one of the things it's doing is it's knocking down the gods of Egypt. See, Egypt had a number of gods, you know, great deities that, that uh, they were uh, God, a god of fertility, a god over the weather, uh, a god over the Ra, the god of the sun, and, and other gods. And it's interesting how these plagues sort of speak into that because here's this great nation built on the back of these great gods and the 10 plagues roll in and the very fertile Nile turns to blood. And then, you know, you have this pestilence and disease and the death of the cattle and, and the boils and eventually death itself of the firstborn. And so this God that's over, you know, protecting people from sickness, well, he's just he's smashed to nothing. God of the weather, destroyed. And then Ra, the God of the sun, you know, he's put to bed for three full days in the ninth plague. And so it's saying something. It's, it's, uh, there's a lot we could say about that, but just quite simply, it's, it's chipping away. One of the great pillars of Egypt is being chipped away. And then another one is the story of the magicians. It's kind of a comical story, but it's woven through it. Uh, and you've got to sort of read through uh, a number of them to see it. But I thought I'd just quickly give you the heads up. The magicians, it's really about the great wisdom, it seems, of Egypt. So it's one of their pillars is their gods. Another pillar is just how bright and smart and wonderful they are. And so you see that right at the beginning because Moses goes to Pharaoh, you know, in chapter 7, let my people go, and Aaron throws his staff on the ground and it becomes a serpent. 
you think, oh, that's amazing. Surely that's going to get Pharaoh's attention. But it doesn't really because this is what happens. We read in chapter 7, then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff and they became serpents. You think, wow, I mean, how did they do that? I mean, the answer is I've got no idea, but, you know, I sometimes watch Penn and Teller and I've got no idea how they do most of the stuff they do. But, you know, these guys are brilliant, you know, sleight of hand. And perhaps they cast down their, their staff and they turn into serpents, but it's not quite as good as Moses and Aaron because Aaron's staff eats, you know, the staff that belongs to them. But still, you know, Pharaoh, you know, he's not... He doesn't really care. And then you get to the first play against a similar thing with the magicians because there's a story of the frogs. You know, God says to Moses and Aaron, you know, hold out your hand, the frogs will come, and they do. And, and then we read, though, amazingly, again, in this passage, Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh, in the sight of his servants. He lifted up his staff, struck the waters of the Nile, and the water in the Nile turned to blood, and the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, etc., etc. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. That's the story of the blood. You think, oh, wow. And then you go to the second plague, the story of the frogs, and it's the same again. And they go out and, and told to hold their hand and the frogs come out of the Nile. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come out of Egypt. So you've got the staff. Then you've got the first plague with blood. Then you've got the second plague with frogs. And the magicians are just tracking side by side the whole time. I mean, it's not quite as impressive on any of them because, you know, again, the, 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 the snakes get, the staff gets eaten up and, and then, you know, there's only a small amount of water that's going to turn to blood by the magicians, but still they do it. And then they call the frogs out just as, as Moses and Aaron have, but they didn't really need more frogs apparently at that point in time, you know. this And... and uh, they can't actually retract the frogs. That's the thing that comes out of that second plague. So Pharaoh has to call Moses in and says, enough of the frogs, will you please? And he says, we've got to let my people go. All right, he says. You know, he never does. And, he, and, and Moses says, well, when do you want the frogs to go? He said, tomorrow. He said, okay, tomorrow they'll go. And it's a real sign that God is the one that's controlling all of this. And so tomorrow the frogs go. And then finally, you get to, get to the third plague, which is the plague of gnats. And it's an interesting one there because, again, they, they, uh, God says, command the, the dust of the earth to turn into gnats. And they do. And then we read, the magicians tried by their secret art to produce gnats, but they could not. Uh-uh. Then they said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. So it's kind of a, it's this story where they seem so powerful, the great, great pillar of Egypt, how wise and how strong they are, but they can't match. And in fact, there's a bit of a comedy because the last time you read about the magicians is in the sixth plague, the boils. And it says that the magicians could no longer stand before Moses because they were covered in boils. It's like, ah, there you go. It is a bit of a comedy really, isn't it? Because Moses can still stand before Pharaoh, but the magicians can't stand before Moses anymore. So it's this great story about Egypt being unpicked, if you like, like this great tapestry. And the thread is pulled and it's coming apart. And that's the image we're supposed to see. It's kind of like these plagues, they, you know, they attack the gods of Egypt. They attack the great wisdom of Egypt. But also there's a third area that they attack, 
And it's probably the most confronting of all, really. And that is, it attacks Pharaoh himself. It's a very interesting statement. Here in chapter 7, God says this. In fact, he said it a number of times. We've just glossed over it on every other sermon because I was waiting. But you might have sort of read it and thought, oh, that's a... Doesn't always sit well, but listen to what it says in verse seven, chapter and sorry, chapter seven, verse three. God says, "Go back, Moses, go back to Pharaoh." And then he says, "And I will harden Pharaoh's heart." So, ah, God's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? In fact, and he does. There's six times we're told where God actually does harden Pharaoh's heart, and here they are. Exodus 9, but the Lord hardened. So he said he was going to do it, and then he does. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Chapter 10, 1, then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart. Chapter 10, verse 20, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Exodus 10, 27, but the Lord, again, hardened Pharaoh's heart. Eleven ten, which keeps on going, it's on repeat. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened his heart. Heart. And then 14.8, the last time, and the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. That is really confronting, isn't it? I mean, it's kind of like, how can this be fair? You know, I thought, you know, that all these plagues were coming on Egypt to try and, you know, get Pharaoh, convince him to set the people go. But behind the scenes, God's holding the strings and he's hardening Pharaoh's heart. Don't you think that's confronting? I think we sort of think, I'm not sure what to do with that. I think we should think that. I'm not quite sure what to do with that. You know, is this really fair? Is God really fair? And that's something I want to come back to. I just want to leave that hanging in some ways for now because I want to come back to it in a moment at the end of the sermon, this whole idea. But I don't want you to miss the point. So this is the point we're supposed to get. Pharaoh thinks he is something. He thinks he is a God. He thinks he is calling the shots. He is a lot like us sometimes. We may not go that far, but we think we are calling the shots, don't we? But God is saying to Moses the whole time, actually, I'm in control of this. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. So don't miss the point, even though maybe it's a sticking point. Don't miss the point. It's a really important point. God is the Lord of heaven and earth, and that's what he's been saying. He is completely sovereign in every aspect of life, including yours. Every aspect of life. The mind boggles. God is in control. He is sovereign He is Lord of all. That does make us feel uncomfortable sometimes because there's a lot of stuff that I don't like that happens in this world. But God is still Lord of all. He is sovereign. There are a lot of questions, and we've talked about this before, but let's just leave it there for now. See, I think that's really important. It's a simple point, but it's such a profound point because what it's saying Because you can just say, oh, that's a nice idea. But no, what this is saying is that this is the truth of this world. That's what it's saying. So you can have a whole lot of different ideas, but this is the truth of this world. God is Lord 
sovereign over everything. And when you buy into that, you'll be changed, you see, because you think we think so often we are to some very small degree, but we still think that, no, ultimately God is in control. So we need to, that's the truth. And that is something we need to buy into and understand because that's exactly what God is telling everybody that is reading this narrative. He is Lord. Who is the Lord? Well, God says, I'll tell you who's the Lord. I'm the God of God's. I am far wiser than your wisest person and more powerful. And I am the Lord of all. I will, I'm the Lord who will even harden your heart, Pharaoh. You think you're calling the shots? You are not. So it's a big point, that one, and a very important one about authority. That's the key idea. Secondly, this is a subject that is really about, it goes on from there. This is a story that is about obedience as well. Obedience. See, that's, this is another, another repeated phrase, let my people go. I mean, how many times has that said? Every time Moses rolls into Pharaoh's court, it's the same thing. God says, let my people go. This is about obedience. You see, because God is Lord of all. He calls us to obedience. It's always been a really big deal for God, hasn't it? You think, oh, it has actually. You know, go back to the original story, Adam and Eve, and God says, it's just one thing, one command, one thing you're not allowed to do, Adam. You know, and then when Eve's created, Adam tells her as well, no doubt, hopefully, but do not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Anything else you want to do is absolutely fine by me. It's fine. I mean, age of innocence and, uh, you know, do anything. It's fine. But just don't eat of that tree. But they disobey at that one point and they get judgment. I reckon that is something as well that makes us feel just a little bit uncomfortable, doesn't it? Because that, isn't that the great question of sort of the world that we live in? The great question is, like, why does God have to be like that? That's right. Why does God have to be, come back to the point, yeah, but, but uh, why does God have to be like that? You know, why, why can't it just be live and let live? Because that's what we say in our society, isn't it? Why can't we just say, why does God have to be, you obey me? Why do we have to yield to God? Now, why, does, why does he have to be so harsh on that? Live and let live. That's what our society says. You know, do whatever you want to do. In fact, that's exactly what's going on. We're living in a time of great cultural change, aren't we? Huge cultural change. And this is what we say, you know, the sexual revolution back in the 1960s was you can sleep with whoever you want whenever you want to. And then we roll forward to where we have at the moment with a change in society's thinking around homosexuality. And then we have same-sex marriage. And then now we have the whole gender thing about, I don't know how many genders there are. Is it 60 or something? Someone was telling me. It's just so many different genders. But it's interesting when you read the Bible because the Bible says something different. You go back to Genesis and it says, and God made them male and female. Male and female, he created them. And then it says about marriage, you know, Adam and Eve, for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother, shall cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So we've, we've taken all of that and we've said, well, God says there's two genders. God says 
that uh, it's marriage is man and a woman. And God also says that sex belongs only in that relationship of committed covenant relationship. And we've said as society, and what we are saying as society, very loudly is why should I yield to that? Why should I give myself to those things? And that's a great question for us to answer. That's the very question we should be answering, I think, as Christians. And the answer actually comes out of the text that we've been looking at, what we've already said in many ways and what has been said before that. You see, this text is telling us that God is the Lord of heaven and earth. In fact, what does God say to Moses right there when he tells him at the beginning? He says, my name, my name is I am. And we unpacked that a couple of sermons ago and we said the I am name is the idea is that God is self-existent. You know, he doesn't have to answer to anybody. He controls everything. He is the environment of the universe. I mean, how big is that? I cannot get my head around it. God is the environment of the universe. So he doesn't live in the universe. He is the God that created absolutely everything. And this is the whole point. If God is the God who created absolutely everything, then this world is his and he knows exactly the way that's supposed to be run. Exactly. And so when we say, why should I yield to him? So we'd like, it's like telling the manufacturer, you know, how to use the appliance. It just doesn't, we just don't know. We have to yield to God because it's only in him that life works, folks. He is the son, as we've said many times, that our world is to revolve around. And so we yield to God because it's only his ways that are right. He is the great I am. And it's in that and only in that the society is going to work. And when we walk away from that, society will not work. And our lives won't work. And we'll find ourselves in judgment under God because of all the destruction it brings. I mean, we look for happiness. We've said that so many times over the years. It's a great quest. And it is found only in knowing God. So why should we yield to him? Because he is God. Because he, and think about what that means. He is God. He is God. And you are not. And so we yield to him. C.S. Lewis, reasonably well-known quote, but it says so much what we've just been saying. What Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors was to live as if they had created themselves, to invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside of God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all the call, has nearly come all that we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery. The long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God, which will make him happy. Yeah, that's what I've been trying to say. I think that's it, isn't it? But then Lewis goes on, he says, the reason we can never succeed is this, God made us, there is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. So yes, why should we yield to God? Why, why, why should we go his way because of all of that? And that's the point of this passage, really, in many ways, is there is one God. He is the Lord of absolutely everything, and he tells us to obey him. And if you don't, you do so to your own peril and destruction. And that's Egypt, 
That is, in a nutshell, what is happening there. And it's exactly what Jesus is telling us as well. You go to the Gospels and Jesus went throughout all of Galilee. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. That's what we need to do. Yield to God. So this is a story. These four chapters are stories about those two key things that we need to hear ourselves. And God is speaking through the suffering, and that's what he's telling us. They're the two, two words, authority, obedience. That's what God's saying. There's also one more thing this passage is saying, and it's beautiful, really. It's the idea of grace. This is a passage that is talking about grace. And it comes through, I think, most clearly in chapter 9 with the seventh plague, this, the plague about hail. You know, some of these things, if you read it through, and I encourage you to just read them through uh, at your leisure sometime, these four chapters. But some of the plagues get a lot more airspace than others. Some of them are, you know, long and others are just a few verses. This is one of the longer ones, and that's because there's a story in it. There's a story behind the story, the story of hail. Let me just read some of it to you. Chapter 9, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go. Oh, that's right. Yes, we've heard that before. Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send my plagues on you yourself, talking to Pharaoh, and on your servants and your people. Why? Uh, here's this idea again, authority, so that they may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Yeah, that's great. And then God says this, and this is kind of the interesting thing. And maybe it's one of those uh, questions you've already had circling around, like why is there nine plagues? Why are there 10 plagues rather? Why are there 10 plagues? Why did God do it this way? Why did he have to do it this way? In fact, we already said that in the introduction. Why does God do it this way? Well, this is Why? For by now, he says to Pharaoh, you should have worked it out, you know, by now, Pharaoh. For by now, I could have put out my hand, Pharaoh, and struck you and struck your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from all the earth. So God's saying, surely, Pharaoh, you realise by now, we're at the seventh plague, that if I wanted to, I could have just wiped you out right from the very beginning. I didn't have to go through one plague and then, you know, you recant and we go to the second plague and, you know, roll it forward that way. It didn't have to do it that way, God says. So why, why does he do it that way? Oh, he tells us that right here. This is about grace. For, but for this purpose, I have raised you up, Pharaoh, to show you my power so that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. You are still exalting yourself. But this is the reason that I made you in the first place. This is the reason you were born. This is the reason why you came into the world that I might show you my power, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. This is about God's glory. I reckon that's another way of putting that, isn't it? You know, that my name might be pro proclaimed. It's about the glory of God. God is on about showing himself for who he is to this world. And that's always grace. That is always good because of the point that we've just made. You know, why should we yield to God? Because he's God. And if we don't know him, Things are not going to go well. And ultimately, we've got to stand before him and we'll stand before him in judgment. So he says, I'm, I'm going to make sure my name is known. But I love this point because he's actually saying it to Pharaoh. 
You know, this is the idea. See what you think about it. God wants Pharaoh to repent. God wants Pharaoh to repent. That might sound a little bit hard to swallow, given the fact we've already said that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So how does it work? You know, does he really want Pharaoh to repent? I think he does. That's the idea behind it. In fact, he almost does a couple of times. Listen to this one at the end of actually chapter 9, after the hail. It's very telling what Pharaoh says. Then Pharaoh sent after this terrible hailstorm that destroys, decimates Egypt. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron. And he said to them, this time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. Yes, it's great. You know, he's repenting. He says, please call off the hail. And so Moses does, he prays, and then listen to what happens. And this is where it's so telling. So God is, I go back and say, this is grace, the hail. Why? So Pharaoh will repent, and he does. But then Moses goes and calls off the hail, prays, and God stops the hail to put it right. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again. And he hardened his heart. So that's very interesting. See, this time Pharaoh's hardening his own heart. God hardens his heart. And then you read other times Pharaoh hardens his heart. You think, well, how is it that God hardens Pharaoh's heart? Well, it's actually through grace. It's through stopping the plagues. And then he sees that the plagues have gone. And he goes right back to where he was again. I'm the king of this world and I'll do it as I like. I think, oh, that's like us too, isn't it, so often? You know, we've, we've been through a terrible time, a plague, coronavirus. And then before that, we had, we had fires, rather. We hail somewhere, but we had fires. It was terrible. And during those times, there's this sense historically, I think, and it's true of even now that we, people will pray more, I'm sure. You know, the Prime Minister even says, pray. Even in a secular world, we do that. But then when the trouble goes, I don't know, I'm just back to where I was. I'm not really terribly thinking about God, just going my own way. See, this is how it works, isn't it? God does harden Pharaoh's heart, but it is never just one-way traffic. God is sovereign, rules over all, but this is the whole thing with grace, with, sorry, with, with sovereignty and free will. This is the thing. One is heaven down and the other is earth up. We are always guilty because God does let us make our own choices. He just sovereignly sits over it all, but he does let us make our own choices. And he holds us responsible for those choices. And we have to answer to him. It's very often through the grace of God and how we respond to that, that our hearts are hardened and God uses all of that for his glory, all the same because he is completely sovereign. I think this is a, a really important text for us. You know, we've been through so much as a nation. The world still is, but God is speaking to us through those things. And he's telling us that he is the Lord. And he is telling us that we need to obey him. And he is a God of great grace and he's calling us to himself, and he calls us to himself through Jesus. Because when we think about suffering, we always have to think about the gospel. 
Jesus, God himself, suffered immensely. God humbled himself and suffered and died for us as an act of grace, that we would look to him and in him we would find forgiveness and in him we could know relationship with God and we could know grace and we could know the genuine joy that comes with knowing God as our Lord and Saviour. So I guess for all of us the question is, what is God saying to us through our lives with the different things that are going on? Is he, he is speaking. He's always speaking. And he's reminding us of who he is. And he's reminding us of our need to repent and look to him. And he's telling us there's great news, folks, because in me there is grace and there is joy. Look to me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these four chapters and what they do teach us. I pray that you would continue to help us to hear your voice through the circumstances of life. That you might be glorified in all the earth and in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.